If you would open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, and in the blue pew Bibles, that is on page 981. Continue on in the book of Philippians to one of my favorite passages. Hope it will serve us all well this evening. But before we hear from God's word, let us ask for his help. Father, we do pray for your attending to and the blessing of your word that you would teach us and you would reveal our sin to us, especially our self-righteous tendencies. How may you expose them and may you remove them, help us to repent of them. We ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen. And Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of our Lord. Now, if your goal, like Paul, is to make it to heaven, simple question, how do you get there? It's a question that humans have pondered for as long as we have existed. Sure, there's recent smattering of atheists, but virtually every human being in the history of the world has sought a life after this one. And they've done so because we were made, we were created to enjoy eternal life with God. Had Adam not 
sinned in the garden, he would have lived forever. And all of his descendants would have lived forever there with him in the presence of God. So the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity into man's heart. And while every human being has a longing for the afterlife, we do not all agree on what that afterlife will look like or even how we will get there. Even within the Christian community at Philippi, there was a growing disagreement about what it meant to follow Christ, about the nature of salvation that was required in order to obtain the goal of the resurrection from the dead. They're starting to wonder, what is the place of the law, especially the Jewish law, for the Christian? And this fundamental question that was dividing the church in Philippi, and it's the fundamental question that divides Christianity from every other world religion, was this. Can salvation be accomplished in and of ourselves through our own efforts, through our own doing? Or must salvation come from outside of ourselves through the work of someone who is actually able to accomplish and to secure our perfection? That's the question that they were debating that was beginning to creep into the church. And it's, again, the question that every other religion has sought to answer as well. How do we get to God? Is it through our own effort or is it through the effort of Christ? And Paul's answer to this question comes in the form of a two-part command. He opens this chapter, this section, by telling us to rejoice in the Lord. And then, three times, he says to look out. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. And I'll explain that means in a moment. But you don't even have to understand the full meaning of those statements or what's being taught to understand that for Paul, this teaching is incredibly serious. See, you'll recall in chapter 1, Paul is dealing with these rival preachers who are preaching out of envy, envious of him, seeking to afflict him in his imprisonment. And when he thinks about those rival preachers, what does he say? He says, well, they're preaching the gospel, so I rejoice. So it's not that Paul gets upset at other teachers. He's getting upset at something else. He's upset, and he's going on the attack. He's calling out these teachers for what they are. Wicked. They're evil. They're teaching a false gospel and leading people astray to hell. And so Paul goes on the attack with strong language warning the Philippians to look out for these dogs. See, what we believe about Christianity 
really does matter. What we believe about Christ, about the gospel, about the nature of salvation actually are important. We, we can't just be people who think, yeah, just, you know, doctrine's okay for you really smart people, but I'm, I'm just going to love everyone. No, we see clearly that there are doctrines that become dangerous. We see clearly that there are doctrines that are coming out of people who are properly called dogs. That's not everyone you disagree with, but there is a category for evil teachers. And what makes these particular opponents so upsetting to Paul should be upsetting to us is that they are teaching people to turn from rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing in Christ and to begin rejoicing in themselves. That's what's got Paul so angry, is that they're turning people from Christ inward that they might boast in themselves. And specifically in this case, these teachers were teaching people to trust in their keeping of specific Jewish rituals and practices in order to be saved. The most notable practice that they were teaching was that you still needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, which is why, again, Paul says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. See, they're no longer teaching people to obey God's command and apply the sign of the covenant in the way it's meant to be understood, but they're simply marring themselves in the name of self-justification. That's what's at stake, and that's the problem for Paul. This is what is so wrong with the position of these Judaizers, what they were called. See, the, the sacraments of the Old Testament, sacrament of, of circumcision and a Passover, and sacraments of the New Testament, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're all meant to be communicating the promises of God and His grace to us. They're not something that we perform in order to get God to bless us that we do. If we just do these rituals and go through these rites, then we're going to get favor from God and we'll get salvation from God. That is not the way the Old Testament sacraments were meant to be practiced. That's not the way the New Testament sacraments are meant to be practiced. They're meant to communicate God's promises to us, his blessings to us, what he has already done in Christ to us. And the same goes for every other command of the Bible. We obey because of what God has already done for us. We obey as an act of worship, as an act of thanksgiving, not as a means of twisting God's arm and earning God's favor. See, we as his people are to rejoice in, we are to hope in, we are to trust in Christ and not in ourselves. And that is what the Judaizers were teaching people to do. Christ alone is the way back to the Father. As Paul says, that that, that way of thinking is what it truly means to be circumcised. It's, it's actually 
piercing your hearts and recognizing that you are fallen and sinful and stand before a holy God and he has made a way for you. And so you need to be cut to the heart, mourn over your sin and look to Christ for your confidence. That's what true circumcision is meant to look like. That's what the Old Testament practice of circumcision was pointing towards, a piercing of the heart and mourning over our sin. And after giving these commands to the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, to look out for the dogs, Paul then uses his own life as an example. In effect, he wants to compare resumes with the Judaizers. He says, okay, want to see who's outwardly the most religious, who is the most impressive? Look at me. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. I was blameless. I don't think he's speaking hyperbolically. He's speaking, if, if you are thinking that you can get to God through obedience to the law, then I would have been one that could have done it. He's saying, I, I have done everything correctly. I have the right observance of circumcision. I have the right ethnic heritage, which at that time, because of the multiple years of exiles and intermarrying, most Jewish people could not actually trace their lineage back to the tribe they belonged to. They were sort of half-bloods. And Paul says, no, no, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my lineage all the way back to where it began. He says, I was part of the strictest sect of Judaism, keeping commandments upon commandments upon commandments. He did everything that could have been done in order to earn one's way into heaven. None of the Judaizers could brag that they were more impressive than Paul. His resume stacks up far higher than any of theirs. None of us could brag that we were more impressive than Paul. Hope we don't think that we are more spiritually impressive, that we are more spiritually put together. Paul was the chief in terms of righteousness under the law. And yet, the guy who had every reason to boast in himself, who had every reason to think that he was good enough to get back to the Father, this is what he says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This isn't a false sense of humility. Paul, Paul's saying that all of the things that made him so impressive, all of the things that gave him a reason to boast in himself, every single one of them was actually a hindrance to his salvation. Th think about it, he's flipping all that the Jewish people thought about obedience on its head. He's actually using accounting language, saying that all of the assets, the, the gain, it's, it's all of his assets 
were actually liabilities, right? Imagine Jeff Bezos saying, yeah, the, the billions of dollars that we made at Amazon last year, that's actually hurting our company. You think, what are you talking about? And yet Paul is saying all of these religious accomplishments, all of these things that would give me reason to boast in myself, all of them were keeping me from Christ. Why does Paul say that? How can good works keep one from Christ? It's not because there's something inherently wrong with circumcision or something wrong with being zealous to keep the law. The problem is that all of Paul's religious accomplishments were keeping him from seeing his need for a Savior. He thought that he was good enough, so why on earth would he need this Jesus who, who came and died for sin? Paul's like, I don't need Jesus. I'm righteous under the law. I've kept everything perfectly. Why would I need him? Paul thinks he can just continue on his pursuit of God by doing enough of the right things to earn his salvation. That's why all of his religious accomplishments were actually a hindrance. It isn't until he's struck blind on the road to Damascus that he can finally see the error of his ways. Once he sees the true holiness of God, when he sees the actual standard that God requires, standards that go down to the very thoughts of our minds and attitudes of our hearts, that those even have to be perfect. When he comes to grips with the ugliness of his own soul and all of the ways he's been opposing God, it is then and only then that he can leave his works-based righteousness behind and put his faith in Christ. It is only once he realizes what it actually takes to earn one's way to the Father that he can stop trying to earn his way to the Father. Now, I suspect there may be some here tonight or who are listening online that haven't come to that same conclusion. You're still trying to work your way to God on your own. Think, I'm just, I got to be good enough. Got to do enough good things. I got to obey enough. You, you don't think those accomplishments are actually getting in the way of your salvation. You, you think that your accomplishments are actually assisting your salvation. Or maybe you're here and you, you do feel a sense of guilt about the way you've been living your life. You do feel a sense of, yeah, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've done things wrong in my life. But your response is, well, I just need to try harder to clean up my act. I need to try harder to be a better person. If I clean my life up, then I can get to God. And let me encourage us and remind us once again that the standard that God requires for you to be accepted based on your own merits, is perfection. That's what he requires. Perfection of your actions, of your words, of your thoughts, of your affections. 
Adam broke one rule, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he was removed from God's presence. How many of God's commands have we broken just today? See, God is not interested in you being a decent person. It's not interested in you being, yeah, I'm better than a lot of others, and so I should get to heaven. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. We've sinned, which we all have. We all deserve death, not just physical death, which comes through all, but spiritual death. Sin deserves judgment. It's what we earn by what we have done. God requires holy people, perfectly holy people. And that's just not who we are. We have to understand we do not meet his criteria. We are not perfect, but Christ is. Jesus alone perfectly fulfilled God's law. Jesus alone perfectly demonstrates a heart of love towards others. He alone has an uncorrupted nature who who is not tempted from within to sin against his father. He's the only person who has ever lived and actually met God's perfect standard. And as soon as we stop clinging to our own accomplishments to earn God's favor, we throw all of our religious good works at the foot of the cross. It is then and only then that we receive forgiveness for our sins and we receive the reward of heaven. We look to Christ, look to what he has done, the perfect life he has led for us. Then like Paul, we receive that righteousness and look forward to the resurrection with him. So when we accept our weakness and we come to Christ, that we get his perfection counted to us. That's how we measure up to God's perfect standard. It's not we do it, it's that Christ did it and he imputes it. He, he grants it, he gives it to us. He credits it to our account. So do not keep trying to make your way to God based upon what you do. You will fail. You've already failed. There, there's no way to make up for the wrongs you have done. The only way back to God is through what Christ has done. We also see that this recognition of loss being gain, that it's not confined to Paul's conversion. Again, I said it last week, but the Christian is meant to walk by the gospel for our entire lives. We don't move past it. We go further up and further in to it. And so while we see that verse 7 was in the past tense, right? whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Verse 8, Paul writes in the present. It says, indeed, I currently, I still count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, 
in order that I may gain Christ. See, Paul leaves no doubt for us that salvation is from beginning to end a work of God. Even now, nearing the end of his life, the great apostle Paul is continuing to lay down his good works and to hope in Christ. And not only does he count all of those good works as loss, he says the very idea of boasting in myself is actually rubbish, which the ESV is putting much more delicately, delicately than what Paul intended. It's actually more of a, a crass word for dung. It's, it's crap. So the self-reliance that the Judaizing dogs were preaching is as repulsive to Paul as what dogs tend to leave behind. He, he wants to, this evocative imagery to, to be repulsive to his hearers and think, yeah, that thinking that I'm that righteous, just you should have the same revulsion to that idea as you would to someone who does not clean up after their dog. Though he has at this point spent several decades now walking with the Lord, this has only caused Paul to see his sin more clearly. This is why he writes of himself as the chief of sinners. It's easier now than it was at the beginning for him to spot where he's not keeping God's law perfectly. So he has to keep looking to Jesus for his forgiveness because even now, many, many years since his conversion, he more clearly sees, I'm not good enough. I don't do it right. I need Christ's daily mercy and grace for myself. This is one of the most important things to remember about the gospel. See, too often we, we track with verse 7. Yep, you got to lay down your self-righteousness, lay down your works, repent, come to Christ, believe in him, have your sins forgiven. Track with verse 7, but only to get thrown off by the time we get to verse 8. Think, yeah, you acknowledge my need for Savior. But then we think that that means Jesus just kind of wipes the slate clean at our conversion, and now it's just on us not to screw it up. That Jesus gives me a new heart, redeems me about 90% of the way, and that last 10%, I've got to start doing, I've got to start trying, I've got to start committing all of these good works to get that last little way for God to love me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, we are broken, we ask Jesus to fix us, and then we use our new selves to go and earn God's love and God's favor. That, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that we live every single day saying, I count everything as rubbish because of Christ. Compared to Christ, everything, all of my self-righteousness, all of my good works, everything that I could ever value is dung compared to the glory of Christ Jesus. The gospel is trusting in Christ alone 
for our forgiveness. Not just at our conversion, but every day thereafter. Every day, you wake up to new mercies, not the old ones. You wake up to new forgiveness, to new grace and help in your time of need. Jesus doesn't just fix sinners and leave us on our own to figure things out. Jesus is the good shepherd whose sheep hear his voice. The good shepherd who guards the sheep and delivers them safely to his father. God is a father who began a good work in us and will see it to completion. And that is why Paul says that even now, he continues to count everything as loss. He continues to trust in Christ, not in his own good works. So it's worth asking ourselves, where are we not walking by the gospel? Imagine on your bad days. We all have them. Days where we feel like complete failure as a Christian. Haven't been reading your Bible, stuck in some pattern of sin, like your prayer life has been off. Think, man, there's just no way that God is happy with me right now. On those days, your head hits the pillow. Just racked with guilt. Where do you go for comfort? What do you tell yourself? Yeah, I know I messed up. No, not doing what I should be doing, but I, at least I know I'm still a Christian. God is still pleased with me because I serve the church. Look at all the great work I'm doing for him. I was a witness for him at work today. Or God's still pleased with me because you know, I'm, I'm still up to date on my Bible reading plan. Or God's still pleased with me because you know, I haven't missed a day of church in 30 years. Even though, yeah, I messed up, but I know God's still pleased with me because I've done all of these things. Because I give until it hurts. Because I'm sharing the gospel. Because I've defended marriage on Facebook. Why does God still call you his child? When you say, yep, I see my sin, I recognize it, but God still loves me. He still accepts me because. Whatever you put in after because tells you what you're rejoicing in. Brothers and sisters, Christians, we must all say, yep, I've sinned, but God accepts me because I keep coming back to the cross. Not because of anything you've done. Think, yeah, I've got these other good works I can point to that are outweighing the bad that I feel right now, and that's why God accepts me. That is not the gospel. God accepts me because of what Christ has done. Because I don't have righteousness that comes through my own good works. I have a righteousness that comes from Christ. That's why God still accepts you even on your worst day. You can do nothing to make God love you any less. You can do nothing to make God love you anymore. He loves you perfectly with 
the full extent of his love aimed squarely at you because when he sees you, he sees Christ. That's the gospel. That's how the Christian lives every day. I recognize it can sometimes feel like sort of a difficult thing to do or sometimes a scary proposition. It goes against the very fiber of our human nature. We always try to measure up by what we do. That's just who we are as human beings. That's why every other religion tries to get to God by what people do. It's why we still fall into these pits and measuring ourselves by our performance. But we have a daily fight to lose everything, to lay it all down, to boast in nothing of ourselves for the sake of gaining Christ. But that is a fight. That is an emptying of ourselves that Christ has said he has promised is worth it. For he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Same language. You want to keep working your way to God? You want to keep stacking up religious accomplishments? You can gain all this worldly prestige and notoriety, but you will lose your soul. There would be no profit in that. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever who would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life and all of his self-righteousness for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for your help again. There is such a streak of self-righteousness that runs through every one of us that we want to justify ourselves before you by what we do. That we think that there is measures of boasting that can be had by what we have done well. Lord, help remove these from us. Help us to obey you out of a sense of gratitude, out of a sense of worship, not out of a sense of earning your favor. We know that you can do this. We know that your spirit can reveal this to us and can help sanctify us. So we ask again that you would do so. For the sake of your people, for the glory of your name, for the purity of your church, we pray. Amen.